Good morning. All right, please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Ernest Hemingway was famous for his short stories. Many of his works are considered classics of American literature. And when he wrote, he often wrote about the relationship between fathers and sons. In one particular story set in Spain, uh, he writes about a father and his teenage son, Paco. Now, Paco, which, by the way, was a fairly common name at the time, had a troubled relationship with his father. And over time, their relationship grew worse and worse. Until one day, after disrespecting his father, Paco ran away from home. Now, his father, desperate to reconcile, went looking for him. And his search led him to the city of Madrid. When he got to Madrid, he decided to put an ad in the local newspaper. And this is what the ad said. Dear Paco, meet me in front of my hotel tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Well, the next day at noon in front of the hotel, 800 boys named Paco showed up seeking forgiveness from their fathers. Now, what I find interesting is that the author Hemingway seems to understand one of our most basic human needs. He understood that human beings are desperately in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. We'll go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our series in the book of Colossians, and today we'll look at verses 21 to 23. In this passage, you'll see that the world is in need of reconciliation. But this reconciliation is greater than that which is between a father and a son. It's the reconciliation between fallen humanity and a holy God. Well, please stand with me once more as I read from verse 21. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that your word, the Bible, is the word of God. It is not the word of man. Lord, because we have spent all week, most of the week, listening to man's voice. But now as we open your word, we desire to listen to your voice, to hear you speak. So Lord, open our eyes now to see wonderful things in this passage. Help us now to exalt your son, the one who died for us, so that he might bring us to God. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in this letter, Paul is addressing false teaching in the Colossian church. The false teachers had concluded that although Jesus was great, he wasn't sufficient. You see, the Colossians were not so much interested in rejecting Jesus, but they were wondering if Jesus was really enough. In other words, is Jesus sufficient for living the Christian life? Now, in the previous passage, in verses 15 to 20, Paul describes the glory, the sufficiency, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is supreme, he says, because he's the head of the church. He's supreme because he created all things. He's the purpose of all things. And he sustains all things. He's supreme also because he's the great reconciler. Right? We learn that Jesus is the supreme reconciler, that he will reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. That's verse 20. But the question we have to ask, and perhaps the question the Colossians were asking was this. How does God's plan to reconcile all things apply to us? Right? How does God's plan to reconcile the entire universe apply to you and me? And so Paul will address this by highlighting four aspects of reconciliation. So first he talks about the necessity of reconciliation. Uh, Second, the means of reconciliation. Third, the purpose of reconciliation. And lastly, the condition of reconciliation. So the necessity, the means, the purpose, and the condition of reconciliation. Okay, first, the necessity. The necessity of reconciliation. Uh, Why do we need to be reconciled to God? So I have to be honest. There was a time when I didn't even know what this word meant. Reconciliation. Uh, The word is used in many different contexts and in many different ways. But what I learned was that biblically, reconciliation has only one meaning. And it has to do with being restored to a right relationship with God. Now, why is this necessary? Well, Paul says that the reason reconciliation is necessary is because of sin. Uh, He says that we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And so what he does here is he, he describes our condition before salvation. And he does this in three ways. First, he says that we were alienated. We were alienated from God. Now, To be alienated means to be separated from or to be estranged from. It implies that one person has offended another and so therefore their relationship is broken. Now some of you have experienced this personally, right? You know what it's like to be estranged from someone. Uh, Perhaps you were once close to a friend or a family member, but now your relationship is broken. It's been fractured. You're like a stranger to them and they're like a stranger to you. Now, of course, no one understood estrangement better than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but they were also created to be in communion with God. They had intimate, unbroken fellowship with their creator. But when they sinned, they were cut off. They became strangers and enemies. And it was now this infinite chasm between them and God. Now, this alienation, this estrangement is then passed down to the rest of humanity. So Adam's alienation became our alienation. And we see this throughout the scriptures. The prophet Isaiah tells us that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then in Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that unbelievers are darkened in their understanding and alienated, alienated from the life of God. So you see, Adam's alienation became our alienation. And as a result, every person comes into the world estranged from their creator. This is why so many people say that they're trying to find themselves. 
I hear stories about people who travel the world in order to find themselves. And the more they search, the more they travel, the lonelier they feel. Why is that? Well, it's because man senses his own alienation. You see, the source of all our alienation, our alienation from one another and our alienation from ourselves comes from our alienation from God. We were created to be in fellowship with God, to be in communion with God. But because of sin, we were separated. We were separated from his presence, his blessings, and his love. And friends, when you're separated from God, you feel all alone. And so this is one of the reasons why reconciliation is necessary. We were alienated from God. Now, Paul also says that we were hostile in mind. And so what this means is that we were never neutral. You see, not only did we at one time reject God, we hated him. That's what it means to be hostile. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, so I don't remember hating God when I was an unbeliever. I'm sure there are some people who hate God, but does everyone hate him? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 8. I want to show you from Romans 8 that no one is neutral, that there's no such thing as neutrality. Romans 8 verses 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the mind of an unbeliever, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I want you to see Paul's logic here. Paul believes that there are two kinds of minds. A mind that is set on the flesh and a mind that is set on the spirit. And the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God because it doesn't submit to God. So you see, our hostility has to do with our inability to submit. Apart from grace, we can't obey his commands. Not even for a second can we obey God's commands. We don't love him, we don't worship him, we don't trust him, and we're not concerned about his glory. Friends, this is what the fall did. The fall has rendered us unable to respond to God in any positive fashion. And so as a result, we were constantly, continually in opposition to God. No one is neutral. There's no such thing as a frenemy. I don't know who came up with that word. That's someone who's both a friend and an enemy. There's no such thing because you're either God's friend or you're God's enemy. And apart from Christ, we were enemies, hostile in mind. So our status is one of alienation. Our mindset is one of hostility. And now Paul says that we do evil deeds. And I think he points out the obvious. Evil people are in the habit of doing evil deeds. That's what we do. Apart from grace, we are bent towards evil. So cows moo, a dog's bark, sinners sin. That's what we do. This is why we shouldn't be surprised when we hear about the rising crime in our city. This is why we shouldn't be surprised when our children misbehave. Right? I think it's funny when parents, especially new parents, they're shocked when their kids are bad. Why are you surprised? Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come what? Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Evil people are in the habit of doing evil deeds. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe Jesus here in Mark chapter 7, well, just turn on the evening news. Fallen man is in the habit of doing evil deeds. So this is why reconciliation is necessary. We were enemies of God. Enemies who were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And by the way, not only were we at enmity with God, but God was also at enmity with us. You see, the hostility goes both ways. And on God's side, it comes in the form of his righteous wrath towards sin. So a few years ago, someone who was visiting our church asked me, why is your church so negative? Why are Christians so negative? Why do you guys talk about sin so much? And talk, why do you guys talk about things like the wrath of God? You need to be more positive. And so I, my response was, well, you have to know the bad news. You have to know the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. Right? If you don't know the bad news, you can't even understand the good news. And on top of that, the Bible tells us over and over again to remember to remember who we were before coming to Christ. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. In other words, remember the bad news. And look, I get it. This is difficult to hear. Let's be honest, right? In our flesh, I mean, who wants to be reminded that they were once God's enemies? In our flesh, who wants to be reminded that, that our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving family members are still God's enemies? No one really wants that. Just like no one wants that call from the doctor with a bad diagnosis. I know how that feels. But that's the news we need to hear. We need to hear that because without it, we'll never see our need for a savior. So here's the bad news. We have been alienated from the life of God. We are rebels who are under his wrath and we deserve his judgment. But for those of us who are in Christ, that's who we once were. That's who we once were. So Paul will tell us who we are now, and he tells us how we got here. Point number two, the means of reconciliation. Point number two, the means of reconciliation. In verse 22, it says that sinners have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So the means of reconciliation is nothing less than the death of Christ. Now, before I go through verse 22, let's do a little bit of systematic theology. Okay, so let me give you a brief summary of the benefits of the cross. You know, what Jesus did for us was so comprehensive. It's sort of like a diamond with its many sides, with its many facets. So I think it's worth our time to review, to review for most of you, what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross. So let me give you four terms to consider. Uh, if you're taking notes, I'm going to read off these terms, and then I'll define them twice. The terms are justification, redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation. Justification, redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation. 
And by the way, the format and content of what I'm about to say comes from The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And I suggest you buy that book if you don't have it, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Okay, so number one, justification. In justification, the sinner stands before God as the accused while God declares us righteous. The sinner stands before God as the accused while God declares us righteous. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So number one is justification. Number two, redemption. In redemption, the sinner is a slave while God redeems us by the payment of a ransom. The sinner is a slave while God redeems us by the payment of a ransom. Ephesians 1.7, in him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So that's another benefit of the cross. In Christ, we have redemption. Number three, propitiation. Propitiation. In propitiation, the sinner is an object of wrath while God satisfies his wrath by pouring it upon his son. The sinner is an object of wrath while God satisfies his wrath by pouring it upon his son. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So number three is propitiation. And lastly, number four, reconciliation. Reconciliation. In reconciliation, the sinner is God's enemy while God makes us his friend. The sinner is God's enemy while God makes us his friend. So you see, in each of these terms, the cross fulfills an aspect of human need. We are the accused, we are slaves, we are objects of wrath, and we are God's enemies. And here in verse 22, well, Paul focuses on Number four, the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, that word reconcile in the Greek means to bring together two estranged parties. It means to bring about peace between two parties who are at war. And so the question is, how does God do this, right? How does God bring about peace? Well, Paul says that we were reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, there are two parts to this verse. First notice, Paul goes out of his way to point out Jesus' physical body. Why does he do that? Well, I think it's because Paul wants the Colossians to remember that Jesus took on flesh. That in the incarnation, the Son of God took on, he added to himself a human nature. So let's remember this. Let's remember that Jesus is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And these two natures are united perfectly in the person of Christ. And so in his human nature, Jesus was like us in every way, except without sin. Right? We can say that without denying his divinity. Jesus was really like us in every way, except without sin. Now, the Colossians had a hard time with this. Uh, They had a hard time believing that reconciliation could come through someone who looked like them someone who lived and breathed and had flesh and blood. But Paul says that this is essential to understanding the gospel. Jesus came as the God-man so that he could be our mediator. 
First Timothy 2, 5, there is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, the second part of this is that not only are we reconciled in his body of flesh, we're reconciled by his death. So Jesus died so that Jesus died. He took on flesh so that he could die in our place. Look at Romans 5.10. It says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son. Jesus died to take the punishment that we deserved. He died to bear on his body the sins of all who trust him. And as he hangs on that cross, Jesus was alienated, as it were, from the Father. Right? We see this so clearly when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that very moment, Jesus took on the full force of the wrath of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On that cross, our sins were imputed to Christ and he was crushed for those sins and his righteousness was imputed to us. And by doing so, by doing so, Jesus takes holy God and sinful man and he brings us together. He reconciles us by taking away the enmity between us. Friends, God has opened the way for those who have been separated from him to come back to him. So I want you to think about the story of the prodigal son. I want you to think about the son who is alienated from the father. The one who squandered all his money. He lived life of sin. And I want you to think about the fact that one day, after coming to an end of himself, the son came home. He knew that he had sinned against his father, that he was no longer worthy to be called his son. But while he was still far off, and I want you to see this because I want you to see the heart of the father in reconciliation. While he was still far off, the father sees him, comes running to him, and weeping with joy, throws his arms around him and welcomes him home. This is what the father said, for this son of mine was dead, is now alive, was lost, and is now found. Brothers and sisters, because of Christ, prodigals can come home. Because of Christ, the Father welcomes us home, and we who were once his enemies can become sons and daughters of the living God. My fellow former prodigals, look upon the love of the Father in reconciling sinners to himself. Well, this takes us to point number three. Point number three, the purpose. What is the purpose of reconciliation? In verse 22, Paul says that the purpose of reconciliation is this, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, Jesus died to make us holy. So I want you to picture this. One day, Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will present you to the Father. And when he presents you to the Father, on that day, you will be truly and completely holy. And not only that, you will be truly and completely blameless. And you will be truly and completely above reproach. Ephesians 5 pretty much says the same thing. That Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor and without spot or blemish. Jesus died to make us holy. He died to make us holy on the day of judgment. But 
in a very real sense, Jesus also died to make us holy now. The word holy means to be set apart or to be sanctified. And in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul says that Christians are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. He doesn't just say those who will be sanctified. That's true. We will be sanctified. He says those who are sanctified. You see, that's what a Christian is. Someone who is already sanctified, set apart for God's purposes. So Jesus died to make us holy now. Jesus also died to make us blameless now. Let's stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says this, You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean Jesus became to us righteousness? Well, it means that since his righteousness is imputed to us, we are truly blameless. Now, Jesus died so that we could be blameless. And then Jesus also died so that we might be above reproach. Uh, To be above reproach means to be innocent in the eyes of others, to be free from accusation, and to have a life that's worth following. Now, as most of you know, being above reproach is one of the qualifications of being an elder, right? We know this from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But did you know that it's also something that every Christian should strive for? Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says that the reason this qualification is called for at the pastoral level is that pastors are to be an example for others to follow, which means that although being above reproach is mandatory for an elder, it should also be the goal of every single Christian. Jesus died so that we might be above reproach. Friends, God doesn't just save us from hell. He saves us for holiness. He reconciles us for holiness, even now. That is the purpose of reconciliation. And now on to my last point, point number four, the condition. The condition of reconciliation. Verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So here, Paul gives us a condition. And the condition is this. We'll be presented holy and blameless and above reproach if we continue in the faith. Now, faith here is the faith once delivered to the saints or faith in Christ. So only those who continue to place their faith in Christ will ultimately be saved on the last day. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Which is another way of saying, if indeed we continue in the faith. And friends, rest assured, rest assured, all true Christians will continue in the faith. This is the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance says that all true believers will persevere to the end through the gracious and preserving power of God. John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Redemption Applied, says this. He says, all those elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and regenerated by the Spirit will be brought to salvation on the last day by the sovereign grace of God. All who are chosen, called, and converted by God will be kept by God. Amen. However, 
The doctrine of perseverance is not the same as what some people call once saved, always saved. You see, many people believe that they're saved because they once made a profession of faith. And somehow that profession covers you no matter what happens afterwards. So sort of like you made a profession and then God is stuck with you. Nothing could be further from the truth. Spurgeon once said that there's a difference between someone who professes faith and someone who actually possesses faith. And one difference is continuance, perseverance. All true Christians will continue in the faith. But if you don't continue in the faith, that means you were never saved. You have not been reconciled to God. You will not be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. And then Paul adds this. He says, those who continue in the faith must do so by being stable and steadfast. Those two words, stable and steadfast, are usually used to describe the foundation of a building. And so just as a building is grounded in stable foundation, Christians must also be grounded in the gospel. So it's not enough to just say, yeah, I still believe the gospel, but you have to continue to be grounded in the gospel. Okay, so this is what Paul is saying to the Colossians. Let's summarize this. Keep the gospel central in your life. Make sure your foundation is Jesus. Don't listen to the false teachers who seek to undermine the gospel by questioning the sufficiency of Christ. Because if you lose confidence in Christ, you're not continuing in the faith. Be stable and steadfast and don't shift. Don't shift from the hope that you have in the gospel. Friends, that is the condition of reconciliation. So let me ask you today, how are you continuing? How is your current walk with the Lord? You know, sometimes as Christians, we place so much emphasis on how our Christian walk began. So I'm at the stage in my life where I can't remember, like, I can't remember when my children were born. Um, I can't remember their birthdays. I have them all mixed up. I get them wrong every time. This past winter, I had to take my daughter, Lucy, who's two years old, to the doctor's office by myself. And you know it's a sad state of affairs when things are up to me, okay? So I brought her to the doctor's office. At the front desk, the lady asked me, date of birth? And so I looked at Lucy. I'm holding her. She's not feeling well. And she looked at me, and I said, she doesn't remember. She's not feeling well. Okay, I don't remember, all right? But I'll tell you what I do remember, what I am on top of. I know how they're doing now. I know where they are in their growth as children and in their discipleship in my family. As Christians, we need to know how we began, right? We need to know, we need to know how the Lord saved us and when the Lord saved us. And we need to remember how we went public with our faith in baptism, right? Praise God for those six baptisms on Sunday. That's important. But you know what's also important? You need to know how you're continuing. How are you continuing? How is your current walk with the Lord? Because your continuance is evidence of your salvation. And by the way, I think one of the signs, just one, one of the signs of continuance is whether or not you are helping someone else grow in their faith, whether or not you're involved in the life of another Christian. Here's my argument. If you are stable and steadfast in the gospel, then you ought to be helping others to be stable and steadfast in the gospel. 
Avodi Bokum once told the story about how he uh, went to one of the older men in his church and he asked him to disciple one of the younger men. And the older gentleman was, had been a Christian for 30 years. And the younger gentleman was someone who was recently saved. And so he asked the older guy to disciple the younger guy. But this is how the older guy responds. He says, nope, can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not ready for that. I still consider myself to be a baby Christian. And so I think this is a problem in the church today, right? You have a Christian who's been saved for 30 years, and yet he still considers himself to be a baby. I mean, imagine that, a 30-year-old baby. What if this happened at your job? So let's say you've been at your job for about 30 years, and your boss comes up to you and says, hey, listen, I got a new guy. It's his first day on the job, and can you please show him the ropes? And you say, nope, can't do it. I'm not ready. I'm a baby. You would be fired. You should be fired. So let me ask you, are you in some way, shape, or form helping someone else grow in their faith? Does it mean that you have to meet up with someone two hours a week, but it could be as simple as asking someone later today how they're going to apply the sermon in their lives? But if this doesn't resonate with you, then let me ask you, in what sense are you stable and steadfast? How are you continuing? I'd like to close with three points of application. Here are three ways I think we can apply this passage in our lives. Application number one, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you should know that you have not been reconciled to God. And since you have not been reconciled to him, he is your enemy and he is angry with you. You know, many people have a hard time believing this, right? That, that a loving God would be angry with sinners, well, if that's you, I plead with you, by God's grace, open your eyes. Open your eyes to see the gravity and the heinousness of your sin. And open your eyes to see the dignity of the one whom you sin against. You see, God is glorious. He is holy. He's completely separate from sin. He can't tolerate sin. So this means sin is a big deal. A few weeks ago, Dan picked a song we sang a song here which puts this perfectly. I've never heard lyrics like this before. It says this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Friends, by God's grace, see how great an offense your sin is against the holy God. Because here's the truth. You've been alienated from God. You are at enmity with Almighty God, and He is rightfully angry with you. Everybody acknowledges that there's something wrong with the world, right? But here's the thing the problem with the world is not your environment, it's not your upbringing, it's not your influences, nor other social issues. The problem with the world is the individual sinner. Look at how this entire passage begins. Before he talks about alienation, Paul says, he begins with the words, and you, and you, you are the problem. So if you're here today, you're not a Christian, I plead with you, repent of your sins and trust Christ. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life. 
He died on a cross for sinners, sinners like me and sinners like you. I plead with you, repent and trust in Christ and be reconciled to God. Application number two, be a messenger of reconciliation. Be a messenger of reconciliation. Those who have been reconciled must become messengers. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, reconciliation comes through faith in a message. It does not come through social reform. It does not come by passing new laws or by any other means other than faith in a message. And that message is the gospel. So preach the gospel. Share the gospel with others. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this about his own ministry. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Of course, Paul here is talking about his own apostolic ministry. He's the one that's been given the ministry of reconciliation. And he's the one who's been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. But as Christians, we also ought to be messengers of that message. It's easy for us to be distracted by other causes, other needs, other agendas. But God has given us an agenda. Our agenda is a gospel agenda. So let's share the gospel with others. Okay, so be reconciled to God. Be a messenger of reconciliation. And lastly, be reconciled to others. Application number three, be reconciled to others. Well, members of North Shore, why are relationships so complicated, right? You see, here's the thing. When you covenant with others in church membership, it is inevitable that you'll sin against someone or someone will sin against you. And then conflict will be born. And sadly, there can be estrangement even amongst the brethren. So I want to give you some practical steps in two minutes. It should be a full sermon. But in two minutes, how to biblically pursue reconciliation in the church. Now, before I do that, I want to establish this. Reconciliation is your job as a member of the church. It is your job as a member of the church. You see, when we avoid reconciliation, we sin against God. Remember, God is the one that's chiefly offended when we have conflict. The sin that alienates us from one another is first and foremost a sin against God. So you must pursue reconciliation. In fact, reconciliation is so important that it must be done before worship. So you are not fit to worship nor serve unless you have sought reconciliation with those who are estranged from you. Listen to what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 23 to 24, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So with that in mind, step number one, be the one that initiates reconciliation. Step number one, be the one that initiates reconciliation. Since God initiates reconciliation with us, we must also be the one to initiate reconciliation with others. So whether you are the transgressor or the other person is a transgressor, you initiate, you go first. 
no matter how you think that other person will respond. This is what you say. You say, because of Christ, I take the first step. That's what Jesus did for me. Step two, if you are the transgressor, repent. Accept full responsibility. Don't make excuses. Don't be defensive. Don't downplay your actions. Confess your sins to the Lord and to the person you've offended. And if necessary, make restitution. And remember, Proverbs 28, 13, he who confesses and forsakes sin will obtain mercy. And then step number three, if the person is genuinely repentant, you must forgive. You must be reconciled. First, I want to establish there is no reconciliation without repentance. Okay, let me say that again. There is no reconciliation without repentance. Colossians 3.13 says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so the Lord forgives us on the condition that we come to him with a heart that seeks to turn away from sin. So there is no reconciliation without repentance. Now, it does not mean that you get to be bitter at someone who's not repentant. But the Bible tells us to hold off, wait for genuine repentance before we reconcile. But if someone is repentant, then you must forgive. In fact, a lack of forgiveness might mean that you have not been forgiven by the Lord. So since you have been reconciled to God, you must also be reconciled to one another. And one way to put this into action is to follow Jesus' words in Matthew 18, the passage on church discipline, which, by the way, has reconciliation as its goal. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Of course, each one of these steps requires prayer and patience and long-suffering and privacy, especially early on, privacy, gentleness, humility, and a conviction to speak the truth in love. Well, back to my story from the beginning. Uh, My understanding is that Paco, our Paco, was not one of the 800 Pacos who showed up that day. Uh, He died shortly thereafter in an accident, and he was never reconciled to his father. And so I pray that no one leaves here today like Paco without reconciling with our Father in heaven. And I also let it never be that a Christian leaves here today without reconciling with another brother or sister in Christ. Leave your gift at the altar and first be reconciled to your brother. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible work of reconciliation. You did what we could not do on our behalf. You initiated before the, found, you initiated before the foundations of the world, and you put it into place when Christ died for our sins. Thank you for the gift of reconciliation. May we live our lives as the reconciled ones going forth to all the world, preaching the message of reconciliation and showing the world what love is like by being reconciled to one another. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.